Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. I will never know the full story of who my mother is or who my father is. And my kid will never know the full story of me. And I don't think it has to be sad, but it's something that I I often kind of return to. And I think something wonderful about fiction is that in a, in a novel, like the way that I shaped my novel with these alternating perspectives, uh, you are able to follow the trajectory of this one character, Hemi, and understand why she acts so differently through the ages and with different people. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Crystal Hanakim is the author of the novel If You Leave Me, for which she was just this year honored by the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 Awards. 
If You Leave Me is an intergenerational family drama set in Korea, centering on a young woman named Hemi, who we meet in 1951 when she's 16. Hemi and her brother and her mother are refugees from the Korean War. And Hemi loves reading and school, but she doesn't have access to the education or opportunities that she wants. And instead, she marries a man to help secure financial stability for her family at 16, even though she's in love with his cousin. It's a beautiful book, this rich, textured portrait of a family and of a country amidst global politics and war. Crystal and I talked about the research she did for If You Leave Me, her fascination with the unknowability of our parents and our grandparents, intergenerational trauma, and the moment that she finally gave herself permission to be a writer. Here's Crystal. You know, I always wanted to be a writer from a young age, as many, I think, writers feel. And then somewhere along the way, I became fearful that the writing path wasn't for me. And I think that was reflected because in the books that I was reading and the media I was consuming. I just didn't know of other Asian American writers. And so by the time I got to college, I loved writing. I was an English major. I was taking creative writing classes. But I had somehow got, gotten it into my... Um, it had gotten into my subconscious that that was not a path for me. And so when I thought of my future, there wasn't anything that I really strongly desired besides writing, but I, for some reason, just had a hard time admitting that. Uh, and so senior year of college, I uh, took on a teaching position uh, or, you know, I agreed to a teaching position but then a few days before graduation, I was sitting on the steps of the college library with a Korean American friend of mine. And I confessed to her that though I had already committed to this teaching job, I really wanted to write. And I think it might have been the first time that I said, I want to be a writer aloud to another person. And to me, this was such a significant moment in my life, even though it feels like a small conversation, because my friend Sujin's reaction was so direct. She's just told me, then you have to do it. You have to do it for yourself or you will regret it. And having someone else that looked like me and moved through the world similarly to me say those words, gave me the confidence to believe in myself. And I think it's because she validated me and pushed me. And something about articulating, I want to be a writer, aloud to someone else for the first time as an adult. And having her take that desire seriously confirmed in me that I need to do this for myself. And I think if I hadn't had that conversation with her, I don't know if I would have continued writing while I was teaching or applied to graduate school a few years later or written my novel, or if I would have let that life path pass me by. And I think that it was such a turning point for me, not only because it was the moment I decided to take my writing seriously, but uh, it was a moment where I began to pursue writing without fear. You know, even by high school, I was I was writing a lot 
for myself. I was writing a lot of stories. I was um, very imaginative in that way, but it wasn't something that I articulated to friends. And when I got to college, I didn't tell my close friends that I wanted to be a writer. They knew that I wrote, they knew that I was taking creative writing classes and that those were my favorite. But I think there's a difference between um, a person enjoying classes like that and then that person saying, I want to be a writer. I think that kind of verbal commitment is important. And it was something that I just couldn't get myself to say for some reason in college. It's interesting because um, I've reflected on that moment and I've told my friend Sujan it's, it was such an important moment for me, that conversation with her on the steps. And it's interesting because I realized that I was kind of, I had a fearful relationship to my writing up, up until then. And that's strange to me because I don't think of myself as a fearful person, but maybe, maybe I am, or maybe I was at least in relation to my writing. Uh, and I think it's because uh, I didn't read any Asian American authors until I got to college. I just didn't know they existed. Uh, and maybe part of that was, you know, uh, th there were blind spots in my um, literary canon. And then when I went to college, I was an English major. And the courses and the books that we read were heavily white, Western, and old dead men. <laughs> um, and I think that it just kind of crept into my subconscious, like, this is going to be an, an impossible road for me, especially when my family is not super uh, micromanaging or anything like that. But I know that my family wanted me to do something practical. Um, and it just seemed like such an impact, impractical path to take, you know? Uh, and so I think it somehow just like slowly over the years crept into my consciousness that there were not many Asian American writers and that it was a very difficult path to take. And so then I guess I was afraid of that path or afraid of, I think it was, I was afraid of how strong my desire was to write. Uh, and there was some sort of release in me once I told my friend Sujin, like, I want to be a writer. And she took that seriously and said, then you have to do it. It just seems so simple when she said it. Um, I don't think she realized how big of an impact that that conversation would have, you know, um, it just altered my relationship to my writing and to this notion of being fearful, you know? And so I feel now I try to pursue my writing without regret or fear. And I think that is also rooted in that conversation. What was the process of like, I guess, animating your personal canon with writers who could make you imagine yourself as as a writer mm. I think after that I really educated myself on a wider more diverse canon of literature right and I specifically sought out Asian American writers because I just had that was kind of a blank in my mind 
And and then I just honestly turned to the literature, to the writing of my book. And it was, a I just believe so strongly in my characters and in wanting to tell the story of Hemi and the Korean War that I didn't care what would happen after. Hmm. I, di- I didn't think about what is the process of getting an agent or publishing or anything like that. And yes, those fears came in later once I was finished with the book. Um, but in the writing of the book, which took many years, I just stayed inside the story. Which that totally leads me to another question I had for you, which was like, why, how, why was this the book? Like, where did this book come from mm. in you? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. and such a hard question because when I started writing in undergraduate in college, I was writing about these Korean American sisters and I was very drawn to them and they were uh, influenced by stories I had heard from my my mother and my aunts and my um, my father about their lives in Korea. And in under in college, I was writing about these sisters and their relationship to one another, and it made me curious about the mother, because uh, I feel like why are we the way we are? It's so often connected to our parents. And so when I went to graduate school, I started writing about the mother character, uh, who which is Hemi, the main character of of my novel, If You Leave Me, and. I just felt as if I had to tell her story because she was an uneducated young, she was a teen and then she turns into a young woman in the, in the span of the novel, but she's this uneducated young woman from a rural part of South Korea. And she is enduring the war. And those stories were important to me because I grew up hearing my maternal grandmother's stories of being an uneducated young woman from a rural area and the the kind of longing and sadness and grief in those stories stayed with me and again going back to my identity as an Asian American person in the world moving through life here in uh, the United States, I felt as if no one knew the depth of the Korean War. You know, it's called the Forgotten War here. And I just didn't see a story like my grandmother's reflected in, in, uh, in fiction. And so I thought it was very important to write about, about that part of history through the lens of a woman say goodbye to your credit card rewards big box retailers led by walmart and target are pushing for a bill in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets senate bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the electronic payments coalition 
I was curious what you, like, what, if any, your your research process was like. Mm-hmm. There's so much layered historical detail. Not that this is necessarily a historical work, but it feels realized with such care. Um, and I was curious how you, how you animated that world for yourself. Thank you. Uh, I think the beauty of the first book is you don't, understand how difficult it will be. (laughs) So I, you know, just dove into this novel premise. And I had to learn how to do the research in order to make sure the book felt as real as possible. And so I relied on a lot of I conducted a lot of oral interviews with various members of my family. Uh, and other elder Korean Americans. I read, obviously, obviously read a lot of texts about the Korean War and uh, memoirs, but I did find a lack of accounts, firsthand accounts um, in written form about the domestic experience of Korean American or Koreans during the war. Uh, because so much of the texts are focused on either soldiers or the United States soldiers' experiences. So there was a gap there. And that's when I returned to interviews. That's when I uh, tried to broaden what I thought of as research. So I started looking into papers about trauma and uh the language or lack of language around depression in in Korean society, I had to kind of supplement with these other forms of texts that were not directly about a Korean woman's experience during the war, but could help me flesh out that character, if that makes sense. So you were saying that you started... You started with the sisters mm-hmm. and then became, but, but it is their mother who is, who begins sort of as a teenager and it's kind of her life that we're tracing. Mm-hmm. How did you, how did you develop your relationship with her? How did she become the center? I have had a tendency to look backwards to understand myself uh, and to look backwards to understand our society. Uh, and so it just felt natural for me to write about these young girls in Korea when I was in college and then to wonder, well, why are they the way they are and land upon <clears throat> the mother character? <clears throat> and then I realized in order to understand the mother, I need to go backwards in her history to the way she was as a child and how she was shaped and why does she move through the world the way that she does. Uh, And so as a writer, I'm often drawn to looking backwards in order to understand the present. You've you've made a choice to make um, the book, have it be carried by sort of multiple characters and points of view at different times. Mm -hmm. And I was so something I kept, I really walked away with was feeling like, oh my gosh, depending on 
who meets this woman and at what point in her life she seems just like such a completely different person. Mm -hmm. And in a way, only the reader can know, can sort of see the through line Mm -hmm. of her of her soul, like how she, how she is at 16 and then how she is as a mother and then how she is as a mother of four. And they, it just seems so, she seems so inscrutable in many ways to her daughters. Um, and the impossibility of them, like the, the, the impossibility that the daughters can really understand their mother because they can't have been there for her whole life. Um, but we get to be there kind of for her whole life. And so we can sort of see how she, why she is who she is. Yes. I think that that is something that fascinates me every single day. The fact that we will never know anyone that we love in a full capacity. And that when we, you know, I am a very different person when I'm around my, my parents and my sister. Uh, I feel like I regress, you know, when I go visit my family (laughs) versus when I'm around my son or my friends. And I think that's so fascinating that, you know, a person can have all of these different relationships and be a slightly different version of themselves. Uh, in those relationships because of the back and forth uh, and because of what that other person brings out in them. And I think I, it's something that I think about often, this sense of sadness that we won't ever know someone we love fully. And especially in this generational aspect, I will never know the full story of who my mother is or who my father is and my kid will never know the full story of me and I don't think it has to be sad but it's something that I I often kind of return to and I think something wonderful about fiction is that in a in a novel like the way that I shaped my novel with these alternating perspectives uh, you are able to follow the trajectory of this one character Hemi and understand why she acts so differently through the ages and with different people. Yeah. She feels so, um, she feels so like the, the life she's given on the page is so full and so complicated and you can see how she's constituted in these different relationships, but also by history, by sort of the political, economic, and historical circumstances that she finds herself in, whether or not she wants to, right? Like I was, Mm -hmm. you mentioned your grandmother, like the grief of being, um, you know, from, from a rural area and not having access to certain kinds of education that you might want. And like, that feels like such a, such a huge determining force for mm-hmm. for Hemi. Yes. And I think I'm always very interested in the ways that we are shaped or change or push against the societal barriers that we come across. Uh, and so with Hemi, I wanted to write about someone who is living under the duress of war and poverty 
And how will that change her spirit? You know, in the beginning of the novel, she has a lot of ambition. She wants to study. She is a different person with perhaps a stronger spirit or a a stronger sense of rebelliousness than the woman we end up with at the end of the novel. And I think it's interesting how living through a war, living through an unhappy marriage can chip away at you and change uh, such a central part of of your personality. Yeah. The other thing that really felt exciting to me to read was the way that the experience of motherhood and even just like the neurobiology of repeated pregnancies also seems to chip away at her. She, Hemi like articulates a couple of times, like it doesn't, it's like something is wrong with my brain mm-hmm. because of my pregnant, like I'm not, my, my mind isn't recovering from my pregnancies Mm-hmm. And I don't want more of them. But of course, she doesn't really get to choose that. And I thought, I, I I really wanted to talk to you about the way that you chose to write maybe what we would call postpartum mm-hmm. um, and and mental illness or despair or, you know, like mm-hmm. she doesn't have language for, for what's happening to her. But, but while maybe we do... Um, and I thought that was just so elegantly done and such an interesting part of the plot that I was curious how you how you decided to shape that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm also so fascinated by experiences that we have that we don't have the language to articulate, right? And so it was very important to me to write about Hemi's experience experiences as a mother and her postpartum experience and have her try to articulate to these people who care about her that she doesn't feel right. And they dismiss her because they don't have the language to say or identify that this is postpartum depression. Uh, And so she's moving through this world feeling so heavy, feeling altered, and no one can, no one is corroborating her experience uh and i think that was so important to me because i think pregnancy is very is so fascinating and i wrote this before i became a mother but i grew up surrounded by a lot of talkative korean women and uh i don't know if this is a cultural difference with um americans or maybe it's a cultural difference because they're immigrants but they don't, uh, or at least the women that I uh, was around as a child, they don't mince words. They talk very openly about their regrets of motherhood. And I have heard from the past from relatives that they regret becoming a mother or that, you know, the experiences after labor were so difficult or that they were completely changed physically, mentally, emotionally. And I thought that was so interesting growing up because it's not a conversation that we often have in our in our um, American culture, and there's so much secrecy shrouded, I think, around the whole process of pregnancy, labor, delivery, motherhood, and how it does alter you in this profound, transformative way. You know, down to your brain, 
Uh, and so that was something that I, you know, desperately wanted to write about, especially because Pemi, someone who didn't necessarily want to have all of these children, and each successive child is changing her more and more, and yet the people who care about her don't see that. Right. And it even takes the re- it, it even takes the reader some time to see that. I think maybe because it takes Hemi some time to be able to articulate that mm-hmm. even to herself. And even I think if she that, doesn't have the language. Yes. And I think um I think that's an extremely common experience of of motherhood, especially I was going to say at a, in the past when there was no access or lack of access for, um, there was a lack of reproductive justice at that age, but uh, now we are in that situation again. But it devastates me that right now we're going backwards because I think there's nothing, I mean, not nothing, but because I think there is something so horrifying about having to become a mother if you do not want it because it is not just a nine-month change but a complete transformation of self Mm. right yeah and you don't get to take it back you don't get to take it back and then you are there is this being that you have created that you have to care for and I think uh, that's something that I was really interested in exploring through the character of Hemi because she does love her children, but there are moments where other emotions come out in her. And I think that, I think that in order to create a, a full character on the page, which is what I always try to do in my writing, we have to look at those those messy and ugly parts that uh, sometimes we are thinking but that we don't say around others. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that there was a second thought that you had or like a second idea and I'm curious mm. what it was I want to make sure we don't forget to go back to it oh yeah giving birth you know connected to this conversation about motherhood giving birth in the early months of the pandemic in the summer of 2020 and how that has altered my relationship to my writing mm. and it's hard for me to parse whether the changes my, you know, the way that I have changed as a person and as a writer, it's hard for me to parse whether that stemmed from the severe isolation of the pen, you know, the coronavirus pandemic or the severe isolation of new motherhood or more likely both. But I do think that there's been this shift in my life in 2020 where before uh, my child's birth, when I became pregnant, there was this kind of, I felt this urgency to write a draft of my second novel because there was a resurgence of fear that I had not experienced in my writing in a long time. And that fear was rooted in 
a fear of losing myself, fear of becoming a mother and that changing my relationship to my writing or to my writing self. And so the way that I counteracted that was uh, to write, 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 and write as much of the second novel as possible. And, you know, it was compounded once, uh, once the pandemic, once we realized the, the extent and heaviness of the pandemic in 20, in March 2020, all of those fears kind of compounded. And, you know, I said that I, I don't think of myself as someone who is fearful, but this was a, you know, this was like a resurgence of fear in my life and in, you know, many people's lives. Uh, and so I was writing with this intense urgency up until, uh, my due date. And there was definitely a big shift after my child's birth because I realized that my writing, my relationship to my writing self is intact. And maybe the shape of it has changed, but it isn't any weaker. You know, I'm still the type of person who's happier if I'm writing. I'm still driven by, I'm driven to write as a way to question and understand our society, our history, my lineage. All of those aspects of myself are still here. And so after giving birth, I feel like I crossed a threshold where I, I know that my bond to writing will not weaken regardless of what happens to me. And so I, it kind of translates into a confidence that I know that I will always write. I know that I will finish my book. I mean, now I finished it, but <laughs> um, I know that I won't lose my desire or ambition. And so after giving birth, I think I, that kind of sense of urgency relaxed and I allowed myself to stay in the narrative world and stay with my characters without that kind of creeping anxiety. That's amazing. It sounds like you got reassurance that you weren't going to lose something very essential about yourself that, you know, maybe, maybe everything was going to be changed and you were going to be a transformed being, but that wasn't, that wasn't up for, for uh, revision in you. <laughs> yeah. I think I was, you know, I, I wanted to be a mother. This was a choice and I'm so thankful that I had that choice, but I was also still concerned that the, my identity my identity would shift from primarily like thinking of myself as a writer to a mother and that that would um, weaken my relationship to my writer self. And what I realized is that that was not the case for me and that it's not those identities are not mutually exclusive or, you know, it's not a fine, my identity is not a finite pie. Um, <laughs> and so that was a big relief for me honestly. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I, I know a lot of, um, I know a lot of writers who are either becoming mothers or have recently become mothers or are thinking about becoming mothers. And that does seem to be a, like a common fear that yes. like, will being a mother 
mean that I can't be a writer in the same way anymore. Yeah. Which is interesting because we, you know, there are so many writers, brilliant, brilliant writers, like contemporary and throughout time who are mothers. But there is that there is like this very deep fear that, and I think maybe it's just because for someone who hasn't gone through it, becoming a mother and maybe just becoming a parent, but definitely the like neurochemical and biological parts of becoming a mother and how that changes your brain feels so mysterious that you're like, what, what could it, what could it change about me? Yes. It's, and I think for me, I love writing so much and I was afraid that, um, that becoming a mother would, that my, you know, like loyalties would shift. <laughs> but I realized that it's actually quite an, ex- you know, my love is quite expansive and I can love writing so much and love my baby so much. <laughs> I realize we're sort of coming, coming up on time. Is there anything that I should ask you that I haven't asked you or anything you want to talk about that we haven't gotten to yet? I love the premise of this podcast because it, you know, forces the writer to think back of on these integral moments. And it's been a really helpful exercise for me right now. Oh, that's great. Can I yeah. ask why, why it's felt helpful right now? Yeah. Well, I think I'm in the midst of another threshold <laughs> um, in that I, I feel like I'm in a holding pattern because I've sold my second book and I'm waiting for revision notes, right? And I have not been actively writing the past few weeks, which is unusual for me. Um, And my mind is starting to wander to possibilities for a third book because I don't do well with, you know, being in a holding pattern. And so my mind is just kind of thinking of what else can I do? And then, um, Maybe this is too heavy to bring up at the end of the podcast, but uh, personally, I had a miscarriage in in the spring, and I'm trying to get pregnant, but I'm not, so I feel like I'm in a holding pattern in my personal life, and so my personal and professional life just feel kind of like I'm in this liminal space, and I and I sense that a threshold is upon me, but I don't know what it is. Uh, And so thinking about these other threshold moments in my life and how they've changed me has been helpful. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear about the miscarriage. Oh, thank you. Yeah. What do you do when you're, um, when you're, when you're biding your time, when you're sort of in the middle of the change that you can't quite see yet? Yeah. Um, Usually I turn to to doing something. Like usually I turn to writing, right? Um, because that's where I find a lot of solace. But right now I'm I don't have that because I'm waiting for revision notes and I, I you know just very recently sold my novel. Um and so I need a little bit of space from the book. Uh and so I don't have writing there, although I have been dabbling in other little uh, writing projects for myself. Um, but I'm reading a lot. I just signed up for a ceramics class, which is a hobby of mine that I 
really enjoy, but ha- but I dropped during the pandemic. And so I'm trying to think of other ways to keep myself creatively engaged in the world while I wait. But I think waiting is difficult for a lot of people, or at least it is for me. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshenwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.